listening to Train of Thought, a podcast of the Biblical Christ Research Institute. Today's topic, Malcolm X and Black Nationalism, Part 1. Let's get into the discussion. Episode 11, episode 11 of Train of Thought, podcast of Biblical Christ Research Institute. I'm Christopher Williams. Of course, as always, I have my brothers with me, Deron Gladden and Eric Powers. Uh, hopefully, here soon, we'll have our other two brothers on, Matt, Matt Lawrence and Michael Wellen, to also contribute to the things that we discuss on the podcast, uh, but I'm just grateful that I have some other brothers here, so I don't have to do it all by myself. <laughs> all right, so we're going to get into episode 11. Episode 11 is titled Malcolm X and Black Nationalism, and we're going to get into that today. Um, so first, I'm going to give Deron the floor. Um, this is this is a subject that he wanted to discuss, and I'm gonna give him the floor so he can talk about <clears throat> what his aim and his goal is for us to discuss this today. And then after that, um, we'll talk about uh, Marcus Garvey and Malcolm X and the differences between the two in their ideologies. <clears throat> and then finally, what we'll do is engage the speech um, that Malcolm X used, or uh, that he used, that he spoke. Um, uh, concerning the ballot or the bullet. That's the name of the speech. Uh, we read an uh, excerpt of it before on a, on a previous episode, but we want to get down to brass tacks with it straight from the horse's mouth um, and really examine what he is saying and critique it as well. And so without further ado, I'm going to give my brother Duran the floor. Just tell us briefly about, you know, your experience with black nationalism and what your aim and your goal is, why you wanted to talk about it today. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. And thank you, Eric. Um, first of all, thank you all for listening over the many weeks that we've been doing this and for supporting our podcast. And we're always so thankful to, uh, to be a part of the clear conversation as it relates to many of the issues that are pressing um, our nation and, I believe are also pressing the church today. And, and, you know, one of my reasons that I wanted to engage uh, this particular topic is for one, I, I, I've studied Malcolm X's life extensively uh, over many, many years. And, uh, you know, before I became a believer, I believe that many tenets of his life are things that I would have found both positive and affirming and things that I would have identified with. Um, you know, one of, one of my aims and actually, examining Malcolm X's black nationalism is to demonstrate that there is a certain departure uh, that we're seeing in the modern context in the world with which we live today as it relates to both the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, as it relates to many of the political arenas that sometimes use black nationalism uh, as a platform uh, to achieve a certain ethnic uh, tension that I think is among us. And I don't know if that would be the goal of what's taking place, but I know that that's the outcome and the effect. Uh, but what I want to do is I want to hold all these movements 
um, first to the scripture, first and foremost, because I'm a Christian, I'm a biblical Christian. And then, but one of the things I want to do is, and I believe that Paul did so in a manner of trying to witness to his fellow kinsmen and to witness to the Gentiles around him is that he was able to bring in their particular ideologies and demonstrate to them why they weren't living up to the ideals that they believed they were and demonstrate not only the futility in that, but the sufficiency in Christ. And so that would be my overall goal. I don't want people to mistake this particular podcast as one in which I'm affirming uh, everything that Malcolm X believed or taught. In fact, he was unapologetically Muslim. I am not. I believe that Islam is false teaching. Uh, I believe that Islam uh, certainly attacks uh, the very person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I do not believe in the ideals of Islam. And I do not believe that they are sufficient to bring a man to reconciliation with God. That being said, uh, I believe that there are some virtuous things that Malcolm X said concerning how individuals in the community ought to engage the community in which they live. And also having said that, I recognize that there are some limitations because you're talking about a temporal system that cannot reconcile man to God because the goal of every man is not to make his world a better place. That's not the ultimate goal before him. It is to proclaim the glory and excellency of our Lord Jesus Christ and to live accordingly uh, as it relates to the new birth. And so, um, you know, I don't look at Malcolm's speeches or actions as canonical. I don't look at Malcolm X, the man, as someone who was infallible. I don't romanticize his life uh, as I wouldn't with any man. Um, but I do look at his particular ideologies and hope that the people who would say that they are affirming some of the angst uh, through the current ethnic uh, strain in, uh, the, or the strain in ethnic relations in the nation at the moment. I hope that they would look to this nationalism as we're critiquing it and see for themselves that they themselves are not necessarily living up to the ideals that they believe they may be. And I think that that is part of its ignorance, part of its arrogance, and there may be another part of it that just needs to be, uh, there needs to be education. And I think we're here to try to, if nothing else, lend ourselves to educating those who uh, may believe that they have the bigger picture when they don't. So uh, with regard to Malcolm X's life, uh, with regard to Malcolm X's uh, thought, uh, we're going to look at his speech, uh, the ballot or the bullet, and critique some of the things that I believe are, are said in that speech but also we're going to deal with uh, why I believe that there's been a departure from the current so-called civil rights movement and the current so-called black uh, empowerment movements, why there's a departure from true black nationalism. And if it is a departure from that, then you have to ask yourself, what is it that you're following and how did you arrive there? And I, I hope that this would line up with the chain of events uh, you know, with the chain of events that we have already discussed in the podcast before this one. I also want to say, brothers, that it's my aim to win men to Christ uh, through this platform. It's my aim to uh, exhort, to rebuke. Um, I don't seek any uh, personality cultism for myself where people will begin to quote me and lift me up. Uh, but I believe that we have to address man's constitution as we did in the podcast with our brother Eric. And then if we're going to say that man has that constitution, we have to appeal to him as such. And so my appeal to you, especially my kinsmen, um, those who bear the same ethnicity as I do and those who would bear the same color of skin, so to speak, 
uh, I would charge you that even if you become emotionally incensed with what I'm saying or upset, know that still it's coming from a place of love and a place of uh, wanting uh, wanting you to live in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again. That's my aim. That's my aim for every man. Uh, I don't care what your color or your station in life or your economic status. I don't gain anything from you to try to exploit you. And so, uh, so that's what we're hoping to do today. I want to rescue uh, what I believe uh, an author, uh, James Taylor, who wrote Black Nationalism in the United States, calls the merchandise of Malcolm. Um, and I believe that that's what we're seeing a lot of today. Uh, even the nation of Islam is guilty of those very same things. Um, so I believe that we're seeing a lot of this, uh, this liberal, you know, black, uh, black empowerment movement that I believe is, is, has nothing to do uh, with the black nationalism that Malcolm ascribes to. And we'll talk about it more. And my reason for not believing that is because Malcolm was a man who offered solutions. They may not have been uh, transcendent solutions and they may not have worked but he was a man who offered solutions mm -hmm. i don't think we're in that place today i think we're looking at movements who are simply holding before us issues and problems and emotional talking points and and political jargon and all the things that just simply create uh, more tension and frustrations between people and then uh, very few of those individuals are actually holding up the bible and saying here's what the word of god says and rebuking everyone who's not agreeing with the word of God. I hope that we're able to do that. And that's our aim, uh, not only on this particular episode, but throughout this whole podcast. Thanks, man. I appreciate you uh, giving us uh, an, uh, an overview of what you, you want to accomplish today. Um, uh, just uh, real quick, for those of you who are listening to us right now, feel free to respond in the comments, whether you, if you agree, if you disagree, you don't like it, you love it, whatever, just feel free to interact. That's one of the reasons why we're doing the live so we can interact with you guys in real time and we can answer your questions. We can answer your, respond to your comments and that way we can get a dialogue going um, in, a, in, in a way where questions can actually be answered and we're not shouting each other down, yelling, screaming, pointing fingers and things like that. We would do our best to give you sound doctrinal and biblical answers to the questions or the comments that you leave here. So feel free to participate in the comment section. We have no issue with that. We, we welcome it. We even welcome disagreement. So feel free to do so. Uh, so secondly, uh, brother, we wanted to cover, I know we talked about Garveyism and, and, and we also talked about Garveyism versus Malcolm X, like the contrast between the two. I know Gar Garvey started the, the UNIA, I think it's called United Negro Improvement Association, I think is what it was called. Yes. And, uh, you know, the, the NAACP sprang from that later on. And um, I know that he had a different approach um, than Malcolm. Like, he, he wanted to go back to the motherland um, as opposed to um, Malcolm X, who wanted blackness to... to to rise right here in the United States. So can you like yeah. briefly talk about the, the Garveyism and the uh, yeah, absolutely. Malcolm absolutely. X's view? Sure, so Garveyism was, a, a Marcus Garvey, who was a, who was a, he was a, black, a black nationalist um, key figure. And he actually was one who would probably be more related to Pan-Africanism, uh, but he was uh, a, a prominent leader in the United States at the turn of the century, 
uh, is a black leader, for lack of a better term, obviously. We have kind of deconstructed that term before your familiarity with it. Um, but he was a predecessor to Malcolm, although Malcolm's father and mother were, uh, were very closely attached uh, to Marcus Garvey. And so a lot of the things that Malcolm X stood for later on in his life, uh, after his imprisonment and after coming out and, and uh, converting to Islam, uh, he, he took that from some of the tenets that he had learned from his parents who were staunch supporters of Garvey. And so uh, one distinction between the two is that Garvey wanted a, he wanted a, a back to Africa movement that essentially would allow for economic and political prosperity uh, from those who left the United States of America due to, uh, due to segregation and other disadvantages that blacks in the, at the time were facing. Uh, and he, he believed that it was best for African-Americans to go back to Africa and to return to what he constituted as the motherland. And in doing so, they could set up kind of a certain economic and family and uh, political stability for themselves and essentially build a life in the, in the nations and colonies uh, with people who look like they did. Uh, mm -hmm. The difference in distinction between him and Malcolm is Malcolm looked at those same conditions here in the United States of America and believe that the key to the black, uh, quote unquote, black communities prosperity was for blacks to remain here as they were, but to begin to understand the political infrastructure, the political, uh, the uh, economic infrastructure, and how those things work that work itself out in their own communities. And then how do we improve, quote unquote, uh, we improve our station in life in the United States of America. Uh, and he advocated separation, but not as a back to Africa movement, but as a more nationalist. Uh, by that, I mean as a more uh, a movement that would separate from the so-called infrastructures that he believed were tearing down the black the black community, but also to uh, to be a part of the solution in the black community by investing one's time, one's resources, one's political interests. Uh, and Malcolm believed that that was the way in which uh, the, the, the so-called black man in America could prosper and could realize the American dream for himself. Uh, he did not, both, both men, what they have in common is they did not believe unilaterally that the American dream was, uh, at that time, uh, that the American dream was held out to, uh, to free black males in America, and to, uh, for that matter, all blacks. And so uh, there was some commonality of thought between them. Uh, Garvey reached his kind of through, I would say, the quote-unquote old-time religion, a certain um, a certain cultural blending of what one might ascribe to as the, the, uh, the practices of traditional Africanism, uh, amalgamated with Baptist Christian thought. Uh, and he amalgamated the two together, whereas Malcolm departed from, uh, from it altogether in favor of the Nation of Islam. And then after his fallout with the Nation of Islam, he began to more look at the global community and see how could the black man leverage the global community in order to make his stay in America one of prosperity and one of, uh, and one of a certain generational wealth and standing uh, and realize those ideals set forth in the Constitution. So, again, I'm giving you facts about the situation. I'm sure we'll get to what I actually think of both of those ideologies, but it's good to know that there's a distinction between the two uh, because, um, and then I would say 
I would say Martin Luther King uh, came along through the civil rights movement and he, he had more of an integration uh, mindset that asked for the, the, the so-called Negro at the time, which is the term that was used during that era, the so-called Negro at the time uh, was to uh, aspire to the heights of the American dream through integrating and amalgamating himself with society. So Malcolm rejected that, Garvey rejected that, but also there wasn't uh, the agreement between Garvey and Malcolm. Now, I'm talking ideologically because I don't believe they were contemporaries in that sense, but ideologically there wasn't the agreement that Africa or going to Africa would, would have been the best solution for the black man in America. All right. Uh, another thing uh, quickly, um, I just want to thank Eric because if you guys that are watching, you see that Eric is um, actually interacting with you guys, you know, liking and hitting, hitting the like button and doing replies and stuff, you know, in real time. And he's also um, going on to the web and finding links for things that we're talking about. So if you want to research further these things, educate yourself even further, um, you can go to these links and you can read up on these things and, and better inform yourself as well. So I just wanted to say thank you to Eric for, for doing that. Um, all right, so let's get into the speech. Now, I will tell you up front, it's a very long speech, but we, we're only going to be here for an hour and a half. So <laughs> we may skip some things or, or we may end up doing a part two. I don't know. We'll see where it goes. Um, we may just scroll through and just try to highlight certain things. Um, but we're going to get into this speech called the ballot of the ballot or the bullet. And this speech was uh, done on April 12th, 1964, which was one month after Malcolm split from the Nation of Islam. Okay. Uh, uh, also quickly, I'm reading this from, I want to cite my source. Um, this is from the website called American Radio Works. It's a public radio website. And I just wanted to make sure that I'm citing my sources before. Like I'm just making this up off the top of my head. No, I'm actually <laughs> reading this off of a page. So I want to make sure I, I represent properly. So this is April 12th, 1964. Uh, and what I find interesting about this speech is the location in which it took place. And you, you already touched on this kind of with um, with Marcus Garvey talking about the Baptist roots. Uh, but Malcolm X actually did this speech at King Solomon Baptist Church in Detroit. So I, I find it interesting that the church has, you know, opened the doors for the Nation of Islam to come in and do this particular speech. Okay. So this speech is, if you want to know about Malcolm X's idea of what black nationalism is, this would be the speech to go to. Um, and it became one of his most recognizable phrases, okay, the ballot or the bullet. And at this time, President Lyndon Johnson was running for reelection. And so Malcolm X declared it the year of the ballot or the bullet. And what he was doing in the speech was outlining a, uh, a new global sensibility in the fight for racial justice. And his quote was that we intend to expand the freedom struggle from the level of civil rights to the level of human rights. 
And so the day after this particular speech, he left and he went and did his Hajj. If you don't know what a Hajj is, the Hajj is the pilgrimage that every Muslim will do uh, once in their lifetime if they can afford to do so. And so when he went to the Middle, Middle East, he experienced a lot of racial diversity, especially among the Muslims themselves. And so what that did, it led him to discard his strictness about black separatism and he turned into becoming a more inclusive movement against white supremacy and colonialism. And so in the summer of 1964, he announced a new effort, which was called the OAAU, the OAAU, or the Organization for Afro-American Unity. And so once he did that, his relations with the NOI soured immensely. And as we know, eventually he was assassinated. Um, So just to give you an overview of that speech before we get into it, even James Cone (laughs) said himself more than anyone else, he revolutionized the black mind, transforming docile Negroes and self-effacing colored people into proud blacks and self-confident African-Americans. So I'm gonna skip and get right to a particular, to where he's actually, cause he's just kind of doing the introduction at the beginning. So I'm gonna skip right down to this part where he says, so today though Islam is my religious philosophy, my political, economic and social philosophy is black nationalism. He says, as I say, if we bring up religion, we'll have differences. We'll have arguments and we'll never be able to get together. But if we keep our religion at home, keep our religion in the closet, keep our religion between ourselves and our God. But when we come out here, we have a fight that's common to all of us against an enemy who is common to all of us. So already right off the bat, you see here that he's wanting, which, which kind of makes sense that he would do it at a Baptist church because he's trying to get the Baptist church to put their religion down and he lays his religion down and we basically take God out of the equation, in essence, and we deal with the matter at hand, which was injustices within the, the black community uh, from, the, from the white community, right? So you guys feel free to jump in anytime. Um, so he says, the political po- philosophy of black nationalism only means that the black man should control the politics and the politicians in his own community. I know from experience in South Central Los Angeles that it's not necessarily a good thing to put black people in office. So I understand what he's saying there, but it's not necessarily a, a, a good thing. And this is, this is why I post, made that post where I said skin color is not a reason for you to vote for somebody. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, we, we should be voting policies, not skin color, not gender. Not do do we like the suits that they wear and the dresses they wear, you know, and and those kind of things. We should be voting against for policies or against policies. Okay. Yeah, I, w- I would say I would say one of the presuppositions. There's there's many of them, but one of them uh, that comes across very strong in this speech is that Malcolm was not endorsing a political party. As a matter of fact. Uh, what he was endorsing, and he certainly was not endorsing 
just the unilateral vote for people because they're quote unquote for the blacks because you'll hear that in the uh in the so-called ethnic uh you know in the ethnic culture itself and in the ethnic subculture where people want to vote for whoever has the most policies that favor african americans that would be the candidate to vote for malcolm was not advocating that at any point during the speech in fact he advocates the opposite he says now you have to be again to re-educate yourself as you're saying, brother, vote on policy. You have to vote on policy if you're going to partake of the vote process. So you have these entertainers and these celebrities who want you to vote on the platform that they claim is a black nationalist platform, but they're endorsing specific candidates who are tied to a specific party for the interests of that candidate and that party who's telling you that you're not black unless you vote for them. That is exactly what this speech is against. And it, it's a mindset that's not novel. In fact, those kinds of thought process and statements uh, and political shell games were taking place uh, during the 60s and also prior to the 60s. Uh, so go ahead, Chris, you can continue. So he says, uh, the time when white people can come in our community and get us to vote for them, this is exactly what you're talking about, so that they can be our political leaders and tell us what to do and what not to do is long gone. And he says, by the same token, the time when that same white man, knowing that your eyes are too far open, can send another Negro in the community and get you and me to support him so that he can use him to lead us astray, those days are long gone too. So this goes back to the discussion that we had when we were talking about critical race theory. Yeah, I was about to say that too. Yeah, critical race theory that, um, and gentrification and all that mm -hmm. in the political sphere. Yeah, 100%. This, this is this is exactly what we were talking about with the assimilation versus nationalism. Yeah, sure. Right. Where he where here he, he's against the assimilation. Okay, because remember the examples that we use. We, the uh, the assimilator wants to infiltrate the white culture and try to bring to educate the white man in essence, so that the white man can understand the black man and his culture better in an effort to try to bring equality that way, whereas the nationalist wants everything just stay, we're staying with the black people. Right? Mm -hmm. And so here he's saying, you know, no, he said, knowing that your eyes are too far open, what he means is that now that you're so educated, it, you're not going to even allow one of your own people to come in and draw you to the white man, draw you to the white man's side. Because in his mind, if, if we get drawn to the white man's side, then as he said, the white man will use that Negro to lead other Negroes astray. And he says those days are over with, right? He says the political philosophy of black nationalism only means that if you and I are going to live in a black community, and that's where we're going to live, we discussed this too, because as soon as you move into one of their, and then he pauses, Soon as you move out of the black community into their community, it's mixed for a period of time, but they're gone and you're right there all by yourself again. Right? He said, we must understand the politics of our community and we must know what politics is supposed to produce. We must know what part politics play in our lives. And until we become political, let me stop right there. Let me ask you guys a question there. Let me stop right there. Biblically, what part does politics play in a Christian's life, biblically speaking? 
Yeah, I think it plays a I think it plays a role, but I think it is a very sedated role. I think it plays a role in terms of the whole uh, in the world but not of the world mindset. I believe that one can use the political platforms to have an influence for Christ, uh, but I don't think that one should have the expectation that he or she is in a theocracy. And I certainly don't think that you try to use the resources of the uh, political sphere to gain an advantage, biblically speaking. Um, and by that, I mean to not hedge your bets on both sides where you're trying to make a better society for yourself, but at, quote unquote, building your kingdom. But on the other way, you're saying that you're advancing God's kingdom. I don't think it has that role. I think the role it does have is you certainly want to pray and you want to see that policies, uh, that policies are initiated that have a moral compass because God himself installs mm -hmm. rulers and deposes them at his own discretion. Uh, but I, I don't believe that the role is what it would be for the one who, is, who would say that they're post-millennial. Uh, the role is certainly not for the one who would say that they're amillennial. We could always explain what those terms mean if there's questions. But I believe that one's role in politics is a very loose one because you have to understand how the government works. For example, you see individuals who are very upset with the president of the United States for things that are taking place domestically. To me, if you're a Christian and you're upset about that, your issue is one of ignorance because the president plays a very diminished role on domestic soil. His policies have more of an impact on the foreign uh, stage. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, you can have impact in your community as a Christian and I don't think you need political help to do that because I'm thinking of, well, what's my role? My role is to win people to Christ. The street preach, I certainly want to know what the rules and the lay of the land are. And I want to know what uh, quote unquote freedoms do I have? And I want to know what areas can I go? Which areas am I asked to refrain? And I have to make the wise decision as to whether I do either or. But my point is, I believe that beyond that, I think it's, I think once you get into advocacy, I think you are probably getting into deeper water than you should be um, because our understanding as a Christian is what Christ will accomplish as he rules over his own theocracy, mm. his own kingdom, where Christ is king of kings and Lord of lords. That doesn't mean people don't vote, but I believe if you're going to vote, you have to understand that you're voting in an electoral college. You're not. It's not popular vote where you all, you know, a group of people vote for me and I get to win because you all like me or you vote against me and I lose because you don't like me. Mm -hmm. That's not how the country works. Mm -hmm. And so I think when a lot of people are invested in politics, I would tell the Christian, if you're going to invest in politics, you have to understand how politics work. Mm -hmm. And if you understand how politics work, you won't get too high and you won't get too low and they don't work on your behalf. And mm -hmm. so I think that's a part of the, issue and I, I would answer that biblically from uh from the perspective of how jesus and his disciples handled the world around them um, if you want to look at the example of christ himself you know christ was very he was very moot on a lot of political issues that people have a lot to say about today in terms of the contemporary age in which he found himself during the roman empire and people bring up paul's uh you know his his proclamation of being a Roman citizen, but that was to advance the gospel in a time of both urgency and in a time in which 
he knew he had very limited time because it was promised that he was going to suffer extensively and that his suffering would bring his life to an end. I mean, mm -hmm. he was promised these things. And the same thing with Peter. But you see that their engagement with the political sphere around them was to call leaders to repent where they overstepped. And then the same thing with John the Baptist. His engagement was, wasn't, I'm going to rebuke, you know, I'm going to rebuke Herod, but I want the other prefect and I want the other governor to win over him. It was, I'm rebuking him because he's in the middle of fornication. I'm rebuking him because he's committing adultery. And so it was always a doctrinal fidelity that these men had that caused them to move in the way they did. Um, you know, I think as you go down the line to the reformers, you start to see that they had a fundamental misunderstanding of the world around them in that many of them advocated for a theocracy. I think we can all agree that I'm not agree with that. I'm not saying, I'm not saying throw them all out. I'm saying the way that they looked at the world around them, I think it was inadequate because they were not living in a theocracy, nor were they the gatekeepers of a theocracy. And so my, my point is, if you understand those things, sure partake in the political process. I, I wouldn't say not to, but I would also say be very careful for whom you advocate um, because, uh, you know, and many people make the excuse, oh, we're not voting for a pastor, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. um, but in the same sense, you are looking at policies and you are looking at men uh, who will initiate a certain moral rectitude as given to them by God because he's the standard even when we look at government. Um, and also there are limitations to government, which is why there is one who is coming upon whose shoulders uh, the government will rest. And so there's a sense in which your engagement with government should not be, it should not cause despair and it should not cause uh, messianic, polit uh, messianic politics either. So I would say that's the role of politics in the life of a believer uh, overall. Yeah, I would agree with, I would agree with what Duran's saying. Um, I also want to bring up the fact that, uh, what it's not as well, because it can certainly become idolatry. And, uh, and you see that, you know, our allegiance is not to the Democrat party or the Republican party. Right. Our allegiance is to Christ. And we read about that in first Peter chapter two, that we're aliens we're strangers here. Although we have the citizenship of being Americans in the United States of America, this is not our permanent home. Right. We belong to heaven. And uh, you have these different schemes in eschatology, like Deron was bringing up, like post-millennialism and amillennialism. And with post-millennialism, there's a lot of different fringes of that, even with like Woodrow Wilson and uh, democratic supersessionism, like the United States is the new Israel is kind of like the thought pattern behind that. And the goal of uh, quote unquote goal of the Christian is to spread democracy across the planet. And so I would reject that kind of thing. Um, I think we need to vote concerning uh, really important issues. We need to be against abortion. We need to be pro-life. So we should vote for the candidate that represents that, um, that is uh, pro-life. And uh, we need to vote against same-sex marriage because uh, that's, that is sin. You know, Romans chapter 1 clearly identifies that as sin. And in the sense of God's um, wrath, wrath of abandonment, where he hands the culture over to itself, you know? And so, like Duran was bringing up the whole moral compass feature, we, sh we should uh, search, uh, you know, look into the political climate and see which candidate has, is representing that, uh, because it's, um, it's imperative for our civilization to 
you know, remain uh, intact uh, to vote more conservative, to vote the conservative position on those issues, to be against abortion and to be against, um, you know, uh, same sex marriage. Um, so I would say that, that for us as Christians right now in the current climate, th- those are two major things. But again, you know, politics, like anything else, you know, when you, it can become idolatry when, uh, you know, it's, it's everything to you. And, you know, we see that. So, you, so Christians need to be careful not, not to, not to uh, get all wrapped up and, um, and worship politics and think that their, their political person that they're supporting is going to actually, uh, you know, save them, you know, in, where they're at, et cetera. So when we yeah. know that we are, we understand that. Yeah. And, 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 and a big reason, the other side of that, um, I mean, you even see it in Malcolm's speech. The other side of that is that, you know, when you enter the realm of politics, the politician has an agenda. The, the politician benefits when he's elected and reelected. And so oftentimes you're not dealing with an individual who's initiating his own convictions. He's initiating policies that will further his constituency. I mean, that's the game of politics. And so if that constituency is on a conservative platform or if it's on a a platform that's not conservative, that would be otherwise known as liberal, um, you'll often see that, you know, the politician himself, and you have politicians who switch <laughs> back and forth, uh, but the politician himself will align himself to what will give him the greater constituency. So I would say as the Christian is voting, consider that you're not in essence voting for someone who is going to be truthful all the time, but you are voting against issues uh, that would strike at the very image of God as much as you're voting for the issues that would uphold the image of God as best you can. Um, yeah, exactly. And I believe that abstaining from the vote in, in good conscience is also uh, an option as well when you're talking about a democratic republic or that which is known as a democratic republic. Yeah, and, also, and, and bring it up too with uh, you know, God's wrath of abandonment there in, in Romans. Uh, we can't stop the inevitable. I mean, this is the pattern. We're seeing right. this happen in our culture. And, uh, and God's uh, wrath of abandonment is just, uh, you know, he's, he's pulling back that restraint, but he's holding them responsible. And that's because, you know, men living in, in sin, I mean, that's, that's the, you know, that's how they act. And so you see that reflected in the world system and our political climate. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. For the Christian, for the Christian, you don't lose because of who wins or loses in right. November. You, the only way you can lose is if, uh, God abdicated his throne, and that's impossible. It's an impossibility. It cannot happen, nor will it ever happen, because he will be enthroned forever and ever. Christ himself, according to the Davidic covenant, will uh, be seated upon the Davidic throne for all eternity. So when you talk about who Christ is and what he has accomplished, uh, and I know there's people that might be watching this go, wow, they just broke out into talking about Christianity. Well, yeah, because the presupposition of black nationalism is you have to lay it aside. And I'm already tipping my hand and saying I disagree with that um, in favor of uh, biblical Christianity. But, you know, Christ himself ruling on the throne, um, that is that is the win for the Christian. The hope of the Christian is his, his return. So in uh, all the things that we partake in in society, that has to be your perspective as you partake of those things. And I think that guards your heart from the highs and lows of what men do or don't do across every single arena. Um, I think that once you understand you serve and worship the perfect living Christ, it doesn't matter what man 
fails to do or what he does do or what he did four years ago, five, five years in the future, what he'll do. Uh, none of those things uh, matter in light of the fact that Christ himself will do as he pleases right. because it's decreed. And we should all know as Christians, the Bible clearly tells us that what I always say, the world is going to world. I mean, so if you're banking on the world as a Christian to try to bring Christian values into the world, then I, I, I really don't know what, what exactly you're voting for. Um, because the world is filled with sinful, wicked men. And a lot of those sinful, wicked people are in government. Uh, so again, this is, goes back to what, what, what these guys are saying. You know, it's important that you understand what our Christian values are. If you're going to vote, you vote on those values and you vote understanding the fact that you're voting for more than likely a wicked, a wicked person. Right, so, so let's get back to uh, the speech here. He says, and until we become politically mature, we, must, we will always be misled, led astray, or deceived or maneuvered into supporting someone politically who doesn't have the good of our community at heart. So the political philosophy of black nationalism only means that we will have to carry on a program, a political program of re-education to open our people's eyes make us become more politically conscious, politically mature. And then we will, whenever we are ready to cast our ballot, that ballot, ballot will be cast for a man of the community who has the good of the community at heart. Okay. Since the economic philosophy of black nationalism only means that we should own and operate and control the economy of our community. You would never have found, and then he pauses, you can't open up a black store in a white community. White man won't even patronize you. And he's not wrong. He, he got sense enough to look out for himself. It's you who don't have sense enough to look out for yourself. The white man is too intelligent to let someone else come and gain control of the economy of his community. But you will let anybody come in and control the economy of your community, control the housing, control the education, control the jobs, control the businesses under the pretext that you want to integrate. Now nah, you're out of your mind. Now here to me, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, uh, fellas, but here to me, it sounds like he is saying, uh, 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 he's actually rebuking the black community here uh, for- I would say that's accurate, yeah. Okay, it sounds like he's, he's rebuking the black community for not um, investing in their own communities and instead trying to integrate with the white man. Well, of course he's focused on the white man, but I'm sure he's talking about just everybody in general. At large. And I, I would say in addition to that rebuke, he's also laying out a, pre a prerequisite for being a black nationalist. So, and that's important because, you know, movements today, such as the, uh, the, the BLM movement, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, and, and those that would kind of identify with that movement, they would, they would say that they ascribe to black nationalism. I mean, that's what, they, that's what they would affirm very strongly. And those, you know, we talked about black liberation theology. Uh, those black, quote unquote, churches that would ascribe to black liberation theology, um, whether it be in the political sense or whether it be from their pulpits, 
they would find their home in the black nationalist thought of Malcolm X. Uh, you know, so I would say he's laying out a prerequisite. And again, the reason that that is important is because I don't believe that these modern movements are willing to look inward as to their uh, particular, uh, the particular um, blame that they would have for uh, the black community uh, not being able to aspire to the ideals of, of, uh, of, let's be frank here, black supremacy, because that's what this all leads to if it's successful. So I would say that he's laying blame at them. And I think later on in the speech, he actually comes out right and says that that's the prerequisite of black nationalism. But when he says that he's a black nationalist, that's what Malcolm is saying. He's saying that one not only lives in the conditions and tries to reinvest in those conditions, but one also accepts the failures associated with the community at large. And, and so I see a lot of individuals uh, who are advocating from places of assimilation. I see a lot of wealthy people who have millions upon millions. I mean, BLM, uh, their donorship is millions upon millions. And I see even individuals who are quite wealthy. I, I know of some personally who are quite wealthy and are raising their fist the highest. And they missed a very key essential prerequisite because they left the ghetto. And I don't blame them for leaving the ghetto. In fact, I would have, I would leave with them and I have uh, been in position to do so. Uh, but uh, I would say that the issue at large is then you have to assume the blame for the conditions around you. You can't blame the policeman. You can't blame the white man. You can't blame uh, uh, conditions. Uh, you, there's not a lot of blame to go around in Malcolm X's black nationalist uh, thought. And I would say if you throw off any portion of Malcolm X's black nationalist thought, you have to throw him aside. Hmm. And you have to admit that you're now a novel entity in a novel movement. Good points. Would you say at any point, does, does he blame the white man? You know, I think, I think in as much as, you know, the only blame toward the end of his life that he had toward the quote unquote white man was he blamed him for putting uh, the country in a place, kind of what Eric and, and you and myself have been talking about as it relates to critical race theory. Mm -hmm. But he did not blame him for the future progress or, the, uh, or for being a stumbling block to future progress. So he blamed him for past conditions as they related to the present state. But his black nationalism was supposed to be the remedy for that. Uh, so he did not blame the white man for the future. Uh, and when I say white man, I'm using the caricatures that were used in the speech itself. I, mm -hmm. I don't ascribe to the caricature of the white man, quote unquote, is holding me back. But I'm right. saying he, he would not ascribe to the tenants that, uh, that many are saying today that somehow uh, reparations are necessary because, uh, because blacks are not able to sustain themselves. Malcolm would lay that squarely at the feet of not only black leaders, but those who are in the quote unquote black communities. Uh, he would lay that at their feet. The reason they haven't progressed is because of them. That's not my words. That's his words. But, but that's, that's where his black nationalist, uh, his black nationalism goes first. And why, why does it go there? Because in order to improve, he's arguing your own economic conditions, you have to assume the blame and then you have to educate yourself as to how to make it work in such a way where you don't have to assimilate. Because let's be honest, people who are raising their fists, whether they don't realize that they have assimilated and have benefited from a capitalist society, uh, but the people who are raising their fists, if they want defunding of this institution and that institution, 
and they want a certain separation and a nationalism. If they want those things, then they have to be willing to look inwardly. And that's what Malcolm was calling for. And he was calling for it in an election year. So it's not like somehow his ideology has nothing to do with election years. He was calling for it in an election year when he knew that, uh, you know, there were two, uh, there were two white, uh, quote unquote, white presidential candidates, but there were also local leaders who may have been black, quote unquote, and did not hold the best interests for the black community. That was Malcolm's presupposition. And that was also his prerequisite. We have a question in the comment section says, how can you become politically mature when there is so much deceit and corruption in the world? Well, the answer is uh, what my brothers were saying earlier is that the only, the only way to become politically mature is to understand the standards that are contained within God's word. And in order to do that, you first have to be converted. You have to be saved. You, know, you have to repent of your sins. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your as as the one who can save you. And when the Holy Spirit indwells you and you engage the scriptures and you study and mine God's truths, you dig into the word of God and you mine the truths from God's word and you understand the application uh, to your life and to the lives of those around you. And, and you understand the application of how it you as a Christian are to function in society, that's when you truly become politically politically mature, is when, when you're standing on the standard of God's word and you're not wavering to the right or to the left because the Democratic Party sounds good or the Republican Party sounds good or Libertarians sound good or Green Party sounds good. You are, your allegiance is only to Christ and Christ alone. That's when you become truly politically mature. Absolutely. And I would say the prerequisite, um, and, and, and again, I'm using that term because that, that's, if you're going to be a black nationalist, this is where it goes. But I also want to say, talking beyond that, that one of the presuppositions of black nationalist thought, even the way it's been perverted today, because I do think we have a perversion of it. What, what would be the assumption is Christianity has failed. That's the assumption of black nationalist thought. And that's why as we progress in what we're saying, even if it has to be done over another episode, the way to deal with black nationalism itself is to deconstruct it biblically. Because I believe that it is essentially holding forth that look, and Malcolm said it himself, we have to become ecumenical because Christianity has failed. We have to become ecumenical because the nation of Islam has failed me. And I'm saying, no, 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 no. You don't ever have to lay aside the word of God to come to any action, and you had better not do so because that's called apostasy. Mm -hmm. uh, if you if you once have opened up its pages and claimed to have uh, benefited from its wisdom, but I say what I'm saying not without a context. I want to give you the context because the very beginning of Malcolm's speech that we're listening to, he said that everything, even a, a year before he died, and and even uh, his break a few months out from the nation of Islam. The very beginning of the speech that Chris has set before us today, he says that Elijah Muhammad, he still credits as one who taught him everything he knows. Mm -hmm. And so to, up to that very moment of, of his speech, he still says that at the very beginning of, of the speech. And I would say that's important because listen to this quote from Elijah Muhammad in uh, Washington, D.C. in 1959. And I'm pulling the quote from a chapter called Black Political Development in the United States from a book called Black Nationalism in the United States from Malcolm X to Barack Obama, and the author is James Lance Taylor. And I'm pulling a quote 
from the book on page 13. And it says, this is a quote from uh, Elijah Muhammad in 1959 at the peak of the nation of Islam. He says, the Christian religion has failed you. Your leaders of that religion have failed you. Now the government of America has failed you. You have no justice coming from no one. It's a simple quote, but it paints the picture of, from, of the fact that if black politics are to develop, then you have to come to the understanding that biblical Christianity is inadequate. And I'm telling you that that's important because one, I, I pray that some of our listeners out there are beginning to sense the hopelessness of ethnic identity politics that you don't get to hold on to your religious affiliation, especially if it's Christian, uh, in a sense in which you want to create any kind of political advancement for black people. You don't get to do that because it's built on the premise that, uh, that it has failed you. And I believe that that offers you no transcendent solution. So um, that's an extended answer to what does it mean to be politically mature? I don't want to talk over the head of anyone who asked that question or who may be thinking that, but to be politically mature is exactly as you described. It's, it's to understand how the world around you works, but from a biblical worldview, from a Christian worldview that comes from the text, understanding how the world works around you and how the world eventually is going to culminate in the return of Christ and the judgment of Christ at the very end. That's how you engage the world around you. That's why you, I pray would make any kind of decision uh, that you make. I, I fear that today what is happening and we're seeing it with a lot of the things that are taking place is a certain groupthink mentality where you are taught to think a certain way because you belong to a certain group. You're taught to speak a certain way because you belong to a certain group. And I'm not just talking about the black community. I'm talking about uh, the so-called white community as well. I'm talking about modern evangelicalism. I'm talking about all these movements um, where you're taught you have to think, speak, and act this way for us to embrace you. And I'm saying that the Lord does not leave you in such hopelessness. He tells you, think, act, and speak according to the word of God, if indeed you have the new birth. So when I, when I walk into a voting booth, I can look at the candidates and go, which one represents the interest that I'm for? Not the interest that I believe my family's for, the interest that my party is for, because I've been with that party for a long time. Um, you know, and, and, and I would say where I agree with Malcolm is he was not asking for unilateral identification with black people just because they were black. Right. He was not asking for that. He was not requiring nor demanding that of anyone if you were to partake of his black nationalism. The hopelessness of it is the same people he tried to help and correct uh, were eventually the same people who, uh, who I believe, and I believe that governments and uh, I believe that government documents can lend to the facts. They were the same people who ended his life violently. Right. Um, right. So, you know, I believe that this is highly idealistic, black nationalism, and I believe it's romanticized. Uh, I believe it does not take account, um, it does not take an account of man in his fallen state. I believe it certainly uh, does not take into account that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. I don't think it deals with those tenets, which is why the best it can do is uphold a, another form of supremacy, uh, mm -hmm. that is black supremacy. And I don't think Malcolm apologized that that was what he was after. I believe that he was very plain that that's what he wanted. Yeah, and, and Duran and, um, and Chris, I mean, the, the main issue is you have to have a biblical worldview. That's it. That's the thing. That's the bottom so line. That, you got to look through everything through the lens of Scripture and yeah. examine everything according to the Word of God. 
Right, because if you don't have that foundation, you're building on sand. Everything else is foolishness. Oh, yeah. You, you have to build on the word of God. That's all you got. That's it. So, um, let's see. I think I want to skip a little bit. Yeah, and as Chris is skipping, I would, I would tell those of you who are listening or, you know, those of you who may be listening and have a contention in your heart about this or, or listening and are encouraged, I would say read the speech. You can listen to the speech on YouTube mm -hmm. because it is available. But I would say listen to it and try to measure the modern movements against what you're hearing because I believe they fall woefully short, although they claim that they're right in step with what Malcolm taught. Well, so he con he continues on with uh... – this is like the section where he's talking about economic, the economic aspect of black, black, black nationalism. And so he's saying, uh, so, so our people not only have to be reeducated to the importance of supporting black business, but the black man himself has to be made aware of the importance of going into business. And once you and I go into business, and I, I see a lot, a lot of my friends like uh, Pitmaster Turner is a friend of mine. I know he, he's gone into business for himself. And uh, some 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 other friends that I know um, have gone into business for themselves. He says, and once you and I go into business, we own and operate at least the businesses in our community. What we will be doing is developing a situation wherein we will actually be able to create employment for the people in the community, because which is actually true. Because when you when you go into business for yourself, you're actually creating jobs for other people as you expand. So that, that is a valid point. Um, he says, and once you can create some employment in the community where you live, it will eliminate the necessity of you and me having to act ignorantly and disgracefully, boycotting and picketing some cracker, which is, which is what he said, some cracker someplace else trying to beg him for a job. Okay. <laughs> he says, anytime, and the point he's making is in the next paragraph, anytime you have to rely upon your enemy for a job, you're in bad shape. He says, when you, and then he pauses, he says, and he is your enemy. You wouldn't be in this country if some enemy hadn't kidnapped you and brought you here. Okay, so now he's going to the, back to the Atlantic slave trade. He says, on the other hand, some of you think you came here on the Mayflower. And it says people laughed at that part of it. He says, so as you can see, brothers and sisters, today, this afternoon, it is not our intention to discuss <clears throat> religion. Now listen closely to this next sentence. We're going to forget religion. Say that again. We're going to forget religion. Right? If we bring up religion, we'll be in an argument. And the best way to keep away from arguments and differences, as I said earlier, put your religion at home. Not just at home, okay? <laughs> He's going further. Put your religion at home in the closet keep it between you and your god because if it hasn't done anything more for you than it has which goes back to what deron was saying that he malcolm x believed that christianity failed the black man he says if it hasn't done anything more for you than it has you need to forget it anyway yeah. he says whether you are a christian or a muslim or a nationalist we all have the same problem. They don't hang you because you're a Baptist. They hang you because you're black. They don't attack me because I'm a Muslim. They attack me because I'm black. They attacked all of us for the same reason. All of us catch hell from the same enemy. 
We're all in the same bag in the same boat. Now, as attractive as that sounds, because I know in the young, restless black mind, that sounds very attractive. I know it does because I was there once before mm -hmm. my salvation. Mm -hmm. I will tell you one thing to provide a smelling salt under your nose is understand who pulled those triggers uh, to kill Malcolm X. And once you understand that the people he advocated for the most, his problem was that he didn't see the enemies in the right place. Um, and, you know, sometimes when one has tunnel vision, they fail to see. Um, and to, as my brother Eric has said, as he has quoted the Puritans, uh, keeping your enemies at sword's point, keeping all your enemies at sword's point. Uh, so I think that that is where he, where he failed and where black nationalism failed. But again, I say the reason we bring it up as we do is because it's vital to understand that uh, if you're going to say that you're for the black community, it is the ideology uh, to which men must hold and to which men must ascribe because they are saying that that's what they ascribe to. No, um, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> I need to laugh. Sorry. <laughs> Eric posted a a link about what a cracker is. Oh, good. <laughs> good. There might be some who don't know that. <laughs> That's why I was laughing. I don't, have I, was... My, I don't have my no. I don't have my internet. I knew it was something. Yeah, I was trying. Happened. I was trying not to laugh out loud while you no, were. Explaining. No, no, no. Go ahead. <laughs> hey, it's, impor it's important for us to to define terms. Crackers, a thin, crisp biscuit. You put, you put that as a thin, yeah, yeah. Literally speaking, I would say that they meant it. Literally. Oh my goodness, you got me crying over here. <laughs> if if, if you haven't listened to our podcast, we're not all serious the whole time. No, we're not. We're not. We have a good time. We have a good time. Okay. But yeah, yeah I, I would, I would, I would definitely. Um, thank you, Eric, for that definition. <laughs> but I, I would, I would, uh, I would definitely say, you know, that that, you know, what what he was oh, holding man. out before the people, um, was a certain rationalism that I don't believe is helpful to the Christian. But I would say, if you're going to be someone who wants to outright deny Christianity, which BLM does, because mm -hmm. they say that they're Marxists, in, in the, yeah, their, their concepts. I would say even if you go in that direction, the problem is when you're a Marxist and you're asking people to make uh, emotional investments. And so I believe what Malcolm was, uh, was trending away from is causing people to simply invest in their communities emotionally, whether it be from within the community or from a distance. I think there's enough of that going around where yeah. people are happy to regurgitate, you know, talking prompts and, like I said, political and election jargon and rhetoric. Uh, people are happy to interject that into every conversation. Um, uh -huh. But when you're dealing with an individual like Malcolm X who was offering solutions, he was trying to get people away from the emotional, um, the, the kind of emotional standard that is typically one that's exalted in the so-called black community that causes people to make uh, decisions against their own uh, better judgment. And so uh, yeah. I believe that that's, that's what he is attacking in the speech uh, itself. Well, uh, one, of, one of the criticisms towards Malcolm X, I mean, uh, to say that we got to forget about religion is a religion. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, it, that's it's true. rationalism. That's it's, true. I mean, that, I would say it's a facet of postmodern secular, kind secular, of post humanism. secular humanism, rationalism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. yep, yep. That you have to develop a hypothesis. And the thing that was about his speech 
you know, he, he, he was not going to abandon his, his Islam. He said he would, but a lot of the things that he says throughout his speech are things that, uh, that he presupposed from his days in the nation of Islam. Yeah. <laughs> I'll stop crying. When I can't they... wait to go back and look at the comments. <laughs> I don't, for this very reason, I don't have my, I don't have my social media account available to me. Well, somebody got to monitor the comment section. Somebody has to. Yes. <laughs> All right. So now, but well. Yeah. He. Yeah. Eric's doing a bang up job, man. He's got links galore on there, so nobody has any excuse to say that they don't know. Good. And we're, we're, we're giving you the tools you need to inform yourself and educate yourself. We even Good. provided the, the scriptures we were talking about too. So, so now he moves from the economic aspect to the government aspect. He says, so this government has failed us. And, and yeah, we'll probably do another episode because I want to get through this speech. I think it's important. So, so this government has failed us. The government itself has failed us. And the white liberals who have been posing as our friends have failed us. And once we see that all of these other sources to which we've turned have failed, we stop turning to them and turn to ourselves. We need a self-help program, a do-it-yourself philosophy, a do-it-right-now philosophy, and it's already too late philosophy. <clears throat> this is what you and I need to get with. And the only time, and he pauses, the only way we're going to solve our problem is with a self-help program. Because, of course, as he said earlier, he abandoned religion. So now, as you guys just said, now we have to turn inward and look at ourselves to find the power within us to make this change. He says, before we can get a self-help program started, we have to have a self-help philosophy. Black nationalism is a self-help philosophy. Okay. He says, what's so good about it? You can stay right in the church where you are and still take black nationalism as your philosophy. So he's advocating for syncretism, basically. For those who don't know, syncretism is, is where you mix, uh, in essence, you mix Christianity with some other religion or some other ideology. And that's just not ever possible. It's just, it will not work. It will not work. It's been proven throughout history that when you mix Christianity with something else, because you're not satisfied with the Christianity as it is, it's not going to work. It's only going to fail you. Okay. So he says, you can stay in any kind of civic organization that you belong to and still take black nationalism as your philosophy. You can be at an atheist and still take black nationalism as your philosophy. This is a philosophy that eliminates the, necessi the necessity for division and argument, which goes back to the, ecum the ecum ecumenism can never say that right, that uh, Duran was talking about. He says, because if you're black, you should be thinking black. And if you're black and you, and you not thinking black at this late date, well, I'm sorry for you. Huh. Yeah, I, I, only to interject here, one of the goals of Malcolm X toward the end of his life, the reason he's speaking that way, and I'm certainly not justifying it, what he's saying is it, it is wicked, but one of the reasons that he's saying what he's saying is because he was moving away from the plight of the black man in America and to the plight of the black man in his global context. And he was also very interested in human rights and how the U.S. either lived up to those ideals or failed to do so uh, in, on the global stage. And so 
one of the things that he was trying to do and advocate for after he went to his Hodge was he was trying to develop um, um, an indictment against the United States of America for civil rights violations. Mm -hmm. And he was trying to present those to, to the United Nations. And obviously the, you know, one could imagine what the consequence of that act would have been if the United States had been found guilty. I mean, you know, uh, trade embargoes, et cetera. I mean, just all kinds of, all kinds of things could have taken place on that. But I, but I mentioned that because again, Malcolm X himself is availing himself to the game of politics mm -hmm. that he's trying to reach a certain constituency His being the black man in America. And he knows that he can't do it with a group of 12 people in the room in order to be successful. So he has to eliminate what? Not their blackness. He has to eliminate their religious affiliations and their philosophical things that would uh, split them up and rather try to tie them together. And so, um, so, you know, you have to understand that that was the presupposition of his thought, because again, what I don't want people to take from this is that this is all very attractive. It's not, it's hopeless. It's as hopeless yeah, exactly. as it was for Malcolm on February 21st, 1965, when he was killed. It's hopeless. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so it, this does not lead to the ideals that even he is saying. But what I'm saying is the modern movements are claiming by merchandising, by merchandising Malcolm X himself, they're claiming that they are upholding the ideals of black nationalist thought. And I'm looking at what he has said so far politically uh, in terms of the structure of the family, in terms of the structure of how one ought to deal with things economically. Um, I believe that they are failing. The only one they're getting right is the easiest one to do if you're dead in your sins, and that's to abandon any spiritual affiliation because you don't have that one anyway unless you're born again. Um, but on those other fronts, it's, it's not something that I believe today is happening amongst those who are, you know, who are calling themselves distinctively uh, black, pro-black, black, pro black, black uh, pan-African, and black nationalists. They're not, they're not living up to those ideals. Um, and I would even say party affiliation eliminates you altogether from being a black nationalist. So when your organization such as BLM uh, receives solicits um, and, and has in its treasure chest money from the Democratic National, uh, the Democratic National uh, Committee and Party, when you have that at your disposal, you have eliminated yourself as being for the interests of the so-called black community that you claim to be uh, advocating for because mm -hmm. you are going against the central tenet of what Malcolm X himself stood against. So uh, you know, I'll let you continue there, Chris. All right. Thanks, bro. Um, and here, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I was kind of listening to you and I was reading ahead a little bit, but it sounds like here, this is where he's coming into a disagreement with the ideas of MLK, with what I'm about to read here. <clears throat> he says, once you change your philosophy, you change your thought pattern. Once you change your thought pattern, you change your attitude. Once you change your attitude, it changes your behavior pattern. And then you go on into some action. As long as you got a sit down philosophy, you'll have a sit down thought pattern. And as long as you think that old sit down thought, you'll be in some kind of sit down action. They'll have you sitting in everywhere. And then the audience laughed about that. Okay. He said, it's not, he said, it's not so good to refer to what you're doing, what you're going to do as a sit in that right there castrates you. Right there, it brings you down. What goes with it? 
Think of the image of someone sitting. An old woman can sit. An old man can sit. A chump can sit. A coward can sit. Anything can sit. Well, you and I have been sitting long enough, and it's time for us today to start doing some standing and some fighting to back that up. So, and then, <clears throat> so for me, it sounds like he's kind of jabbing at the, the civil rights movement. In a yeah, he's, he's against the perpetual protest, which is, as we have said in many episodes, it's lucrative, it's emotionally stimulating to some, um, but it is not geared toward actual solutions. Mm-hmm. You know, um, hashtags can, hashtag campaigns don't resolve issues. Hashtag campaigns raise awareness, but they don't resolve issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, you know, a lot of what he's saying has a nugget of truth in it for this reason that many people today, and this is how you can get people to become oppressed. Uh, And I'm talking about across all lines. I'm talking religiously, societally. When you begin to make it seem as though the normal things that they do, the reasonable acts that they take are protests. And when they they have to lobby and protest to do normal things, because that was the thing in the 60s, that you had African-Americans who simply wanted to eat at restaurants in which they were not allowed. What Malcolm X is saying, instead of sitting there and having people pour milkshakes over your head, open up your own restaurants and sit in your own restaurants. Mm -hmm. And I would say it's the same thing today, where you have people who are protesting things that you should be normally able to do, and then cheering themselves on for being successful in their protest. I just think that that kind of mindset, uh, that you, you begin to enslave people, not liberate them, when you line them up and you send them out to protest against things that are actually normal human behavior, I would say, and uh, according to the Constitution, they're rights that are intrinsic to every man, woman, and child. And yeah. some might say, well, you know, Duran, those rights aren't for Black Americans, nor were they ever. Well, that's a mindset more than it is a reality, uh, because one has to fight along those lines. And I think, if anything, that's what Malcolm was trying to achieve. He was saying that Blacks have the rights to go into business for themselves. They don't have to rely on X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not saying any of this is transcendent. I'm just giving you the logical step-by-step of what he's saying and how he arrived there and why he's saying what he's saying. Right. So um, he took exception to the protest itself because the protest itself only beget, it, be, it, it, it begets more protest. Mm-hmm. So once you get in the picket line, you have to stay in the picket line. But if you get out of the picket line and say, you know what, if they don't want me to work here, I'm just going to open up a business where I can work. If they don't want me to worship here, and if the Lord has called me into the ministry, I'm going to serve him where he places me. You know, I mean, I think it's the mindset that says uh, that one has to go into those areas and arenas where God has sent them. And you ought not have to beg to have a certain kind of influence or to have a certain kind of uh, need or necessity met. I I do think, uh, you know, I'm looking at it from a biblical worldview, but I think what Malcolm was doing economically and socially is he was saying that you don't have to rely on things that are reasonable from people who don't want you to have them. And I think that goes a long way toward, uh, you know, when we're looking at BL, the BLM movement, they're having people advocate for justice. And you have justice. You may not know how to tap into the justice that you have, but you have justice. And if you don't have justice, you have the platform in the modern society to call out and cry out for reform. Mm-hmm. And 
that is – he was arguing in the time that that wasn't necessarily true. So, uh, but I mean, continue on, brother. I mean, it's like you said, you know, in today's society, the freedoms that we have, if, if they don't want you at this college, go apply to another one. If they don't want you at this business, go to another one or start your own. You know, they don't want you at this church, like you said, you go to another one. They're, they're everywhere. Right. You know, you, you have choices, you know. And, but and, it's, and, it's, and the, yeah, the issue, the issue where you see Marxism and mm -hmm. communism and fascism enter in is if you don't want me to buy from your store, I'm going to bomb your store. That's that's how a mafia works. Mm -hmm. That's that's how a fascist society works. That's how a regressive society works. Um, when you say, and, when, and then when you say I have to bomb the store and tear down everything because all the stores are just like it, or you say I have to bomb the store because I don't have any other options. And that would be the modern movement that makes a false equivalency uh, that tries to tie itself to the former movement. Right, it's, 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 it's nothing to what Malcolm was saying at all. Absolutely not. It, it doesn't even add up to it. It doesn't match at all. <clears throat> okay, so now we're getting into his, his phrase, the ballot or the bullet. He says, why does it look like it might be the year of the ballot or the bullet? Because Negroes have listened to the trickery and the lies and the false promises of the white man now for too long, and they're fed up. Like you said, he was uh, decrying the past uh, things that the white man did and not necessarily looking at the present or the future particularly he says <clears throat> and they're fed up they've become disenchanted they've become disillusioned they've become dissatisfied and all of this has built up frustrations in the black community that makes the black community throughout america today more explosive than all of the atomic bombs the russians can ever invent Whenever you got a racial powder keg sitting in your lap, you're in more trouble than if you had an atomic powder keg sitting in your lap. When a racial powder keg goes off, it doesn't care who it knocks out the way. Understand this, it's dangerous. And in 1964, this seems to be the year. Because what can the white man use now to fool us after he put down that march on Washington? And you see all through that now, he tricked you had you marching down to Washington, had you marching back and forth between the feet of a dead man named Lincoln and another dead man named George Washington singing, we shall overcome. So again. And he saw that as an engineer of the, <laughs> of the political liberal. I mean, he, 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 he didn't see that being engineered by the civil rights movement. And that's why, you know, distinctions, history, it's all so important because He's someone who lived in that context, and he's telling you who he held, holds responsible for putting that march together. And, you know, I'm not saying that I agree with where he arrives with it because I don't, but mm -hmm. I'm saying he didn't see it as a Martin Luther King invention. He saw it as Martin Luther King was used as a political pawn to bring that to, to pass. Again, I'm not saying that's 100% the case, but I'm saying that's what Malcolm X said uh, was 100% the case. Yeah. <clears throat> he goes on, he says, he made a chump out of you. He made a fool out of you. He made you think you were going somewhere and you end up going nowhere but between Lincoln and, Wa and Washington. So today, so today our people are disillusioned. <laughs> They've become... Vicious, man. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? He, he didn't mince his words at all. Yeah, They've become disenchanted. They've become dissatisfied. And in their frustrations, they want action. And in 1964, you'll see this young black man, this new generation, asking for the ballot or the bullet. 
that old Uncle Tom action is outdated. The young generation don't want to hear anything about the odds are against us. What do we care about odds? He says, when this country here was first being founded, there were 13 colonies. The whites were colonized. They were fed up with this taxation without representation. So some of them stood up and said, liberty or death. I went to a white school over here in Mason, Michigan. The white man made the mistake of letting me read his history books. He made the mistake of teaching me that Patrick Henry was a patriot and George Washington wasn't nothing nonviolent about old Pat or George Washington. Liberty or death is what was brought is that's a typo. Liberty or death is what brought about the freedom of whites in this country from the English, which goes to his his phraseology about by by any means necessary. Right. <clears throat> Said so they didn't care about the odds why they faced the wrath of the British, the entire British Empire. And in those days, they used to say that the British Empire was so vast and so powerful that the sun would never set on it. This is how big it was. Yet these 13 little scrawny states, tired of taxation without representation, tired of being exploited and oppressed and degraded, told that big British Empire liberty or death. And here you have 22 million Afro-Americans, Black people today, catching more hell than Patrick Henry ever saw. So he goes on, he says, and I'm here to tell you in case you don't know it, that you got a new generation of black people in this country who don't care anything whatsoever about the odds. They don't want to hear you old Uncle Tom handkerchief heads talking about the odds. No, this is a new generation. If they're going to draft these young black men and send them over to Korea or to South Vietnam to face 800 million Chinese, if you're not afraid of those odds, you shouldn't be afraid of these odds. So he's, he's trying to bolster bolster up yeah. <clears throat> the black community in the, in the sense of either choosing to vote or find another means to get the, the the nationalism going that he so desires. Absolutely, and you know you know the thing about the thing about his call to even um, violent action if it's necessary in the face of be it liberty or or uh, oppression. His wasn't a call to simply topple uh, certain structures or symbols, you know, and, and nor did he advocate for you to join, you know, the quote unquote lesser of two evils as if that's possible. And he certainly didn't want his cause to be politicized and merchandised. And by that, I mean, it's not feed yourself to BLM because, uh, because, of, uh, because of what they say. You look at what they do. You look at what they represent. Who are they tied to? And so I'm, I'm saying for the individual who would say, I am staunchly black nationalist. I want nothing to do with your Christianity. I want nothing to do with anything. I'm speaking to that individual at this moment. And I'm saying you even have to look to the weight of hypocrisy of the movement to which you're saying you're ascribed. Because, because in this very thing, they have farmed themselves and prostituted themselves out to the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is, according to what I see, and Brother Eric, disagree with me if you will, it is a party that is just as white as the Republican Party. And so, so no disagreement there. <laughs> so, so to me, you're saying, well, I want freedom from my oppressors, but you're willing to farm yourself out to the party that is actually telling you to do more marching, more sit-ins, more, more, uh, you know, more toppling of symbols 
and they're also inflicting you with policies that don't necessarily line up to the nationalism that Malcolm spoke of in this speech. And I know that a lot of that is due to the lack of education in this topic. I'm not saying people are stupid. I'm saying the lack of self-education in this topic, in this arena. And you don't think that these people know that you are emotionally invested in what they're saying? Mm-hmm. Because I've watched people who don't care a lick about what goes on in the post office. And I come from a family who worked in the post office. And all of a sudden, everybody has something to say about the post office. The post office used to be an inside joke because nobody really cared about it except that people would go postal <laughs> at the post office <laughs> right. because of the conditions that they hated. But yeah. it was never, you know, people align themselves to topics that fit their party's interests. Mm-hmm. And I believe Malcolm himself was strongly against that. And yeah, he, he actually says that in this, this last paragraph. Oh, and, oh yeah. And, 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 then, and then I'll let you have the final word. Yeah. Says, I'm one of the 22 million black victims of the Democrats. Then he goes on. One of the 22 million black victims of the Republicans. And one of the 22 million black victims of Americanism. And when I speak, I don't speak as a Democrat or a Republican, which is the problem with, with a lot of people that I run into when I'm talking about policy and stuff. That Oh, you must be a Republican, a conservative. Yeah, they want to automatically I'm, put you with Trump. I'm, yeah. I'm not any of that. I don't align with any party. Okay. I, like, I, like we established, I'm trying to follow the biblical worldview on things. And I decry things the Democrats do, the Republicans do, the Libertarians, or whoever else. Okay? Well, yeah, it's the, if same, I, it's the if, same thing that he's saying. Yeah, if I, if I could just briefly interrupt you, mm-hmm. I, I think, I think, you know, people sometimes regard that kind of statement with suspicion because they think you're trying to escape something. I don't ascribe to Trumpism as much as I don't ascribe uh, to the Democratic platform. Uh, like Brother Eric said, you show me conservative policies and I'm going to make sure that I not only lend my voice to them, but I'm going to make sure that I champion them and I'm going to make sure that I uphold them. And so but Conservative um, according to scripture. Conservative according to scripture. I'm not, I'm, not talking just, about the, wanna, I'm not talking about the platform. Exactly. Yeah, I want to clarify that. Because what I'm about to say is because you'll have people who switch sides. You'll have your, fav- your favorite politician will be a conservative politician one election cycle, and then he'll lend himself to more liberal policies than the other, and vice versa. So I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm against either so as to remain silent. Uh, I'm saying that I'm against both because both have uh, the power to exploit you to begin to draw you away from what the Bible actually says concerning how you ought to live in this world. Mm-hmm. If you want to know how you're supposed to walk in this world, read, read Ephesians. The Constitution doesn't teach you how to walk in a manner worthy of things of Christ. The, uh, the, the, uh, the book of Ephesians and other books of the Bible do that. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what my chief concern is when I look at the realm of politics um, you know, people, I believe people hate Trump for reasons that they're told to hate him, just like they loved Obama for reasons they were told to love him. And I don't think people are really thinking about policy. I think they're thinking about um, groupthink. They're thinking about, and I, I believe that this has been true in the last, uh, I would say, 40, 50 years of elections. Celebrity people, culture. Yeah, the celebrity culture, that people are championing things because their favorite people champion them. And they hate things because the person they're told to hate champions them. Mm-hmm. But nobody's really paying attention to what's true, what's noble, what's right. lovely, what's pure. So, uh, but I'll let you continue, brother. I want you to finish reading. 
Yeah, just just this last sentence here, and then you 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 can close it out. He says, and when I speak, I don't speak as a Democrat or a Republican, nor an American. I speak as a victim of America's so-called democracy. You and I have never seen democracy. All we've seen is hypocrisy. So yeah, I, I, go ahead, brother. It rhymes. <laughs> it does. <laughs> I think that was on purpose. <laughs> so I, we'll, I would say to that point, um, to that point, if you want to say the quote-unquote black experience, I think we can all agree that that was true on many fronts. To that point, the question is: Is it unilaterally true? Uh, Fifty years later, mm-hmm. sixty years later, almost. Um, and and the answer we have been giving on this platform is no. Right. It's not true. Um, because people are saying, well, what about so-and-so? What about so-and-so? What about so-and-so? And honestly, it, it, it comes down to even in this life, what about yourself? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's like I said, I've gotten into contention in person with people or, uh, you know, discussion with people through social media platforms uh, as a result of our episodes. And you'll start to engage people. You know what they'll say? Hey, you know what? I'll, I'll be right back. I got to go and... Uh, take my children out to the park or I got to go and, you know, my, my kids have a basketball workout or I got to go, you know, we're having a a barbecue or a family gathering. I got to go to work. You know, they're making statements that, you know, their whole argument is that they're oppressed and their movements are restricted, but they leave an argument where I'm telling you you're free to go and do things that free men do. And so, you know, I just think that there's an irony that's set before people. I think when you look at this speech, the one thing you have to understand about Malcolm is he did not evolve beyond the speech because he died, you know, a a year later, Mm -hmm. uh, almost a year later, about 10 months later. And I say that in the sense of he didn't evolve in the sense that he pretty much established a foundation and the platform that he believed was going to push his community forward. And, you know, People might think it unfair for us to look at this speech and say, well, what will become of him today? I would turn that around on them and say it's unfair for them to hold him up as the champion of their movement if they're not going to ascribe uh, uh, to everything that he mentioned in his life. Right. This was his 39 years upon the earth at the very end. He said, this is what I hold to. This is, this is the hill I'm willing to die on. This is the hill I'm willing to take a bullet for. Yeah, sadly, and- sadly, he did. And sadly, he very, he very much did. And I believe that there were many nefarious characters who added to that. But my point is that if you're going to be a movement who says you're for the black community, um, you have to establish yourself uh, along the premises of the black nationalist movement as a, as a whole, or else you are a hypocrite or else you're simply feeding your people to the very ills that, uh, that the leaders before you, I've tried to cure. And I believe that Black Lives Matter is guilty of that uh, in the political spectrum. I believe the Democratic Party is guilty of that in the political spectrum. And to a degree, I believe the Republican Party is guilty of that uh, because, again, they're politicizing things that make for a better turnout at the voter polls. And to me, if you're looking at policy, you don't need to persuade me to vote if I'm educated in your policies. I'll be persuaded by what you do as a man of action. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that black nationalism fell short. Uh, You know, if we, if we fast forward the black Panther party 
tried to push forward the ideals, but when you take the word of God away and you let the flesh have its day and you let the flesh rule and reign and there's no biblical precedence for actions, the issue that the Black Panther Party saw beyond COINTELPRO and the infiltration of the Federal Bureau mm. of Investigation because they were against communism and they saw communist motifs in the movement, but you also had it implode from the inward, uh, from, from the inside. And uh, the founders of the Black Panther Party would say that. That's not something I'm reading into them right. because they began to, uh, along with building education programs, they began to also sell drugs as a means of revenue. And they weren't selling drugs outside of their community. They were selling drugs into the community. Mm -hmm. And so some might say, well, who, who flooded the community with those drugs, uh, with those drugs? You can't say that if you hold to black nationalism. You have to say who allowed those drugs into our community. Right. And so that would be the proper perspective. So I would say, uh, you know, we're critiquing it and holding it up against We're holding one false ideology uh, against another false ideology. I would say... The only safe haven for all this is biblical Christianity as it is proclaimed in unity and sound doctrine in God's word without triaging any of the doctrines, upholding them all, uh, and then placing them in the context of uh, God's perfections as they work all together, as my brother says, at maximum capacity for all time working together. That's how you understand how am I to live my life in this world uh, so I'm not setting before you today uh, the attractiveness of black nationalism. It's about as futile as the Democratic Party. Uh, it's about as futile as uh, the so-called tenets of republicanism. Um, it's about as futile as all the other things that would seem to take away at this very hour our affections away from Christ. Um, and again, if you're going to look to the issues in the world in which you live, look for those values which represent a biblical worldview. Um, I, I thank you, brother, for correcting me in that because I don't mean conservative, like I'm I'm advocating for Trump uh, or yeah, I'm advocating I've, for the the Republican Party. I don't yeah, I've mean been a, I've been accused of it, so I had to keep clarifying myself. Absolutely, so absolutely. And when I say liberal, I, you know, because there's a liberal in the spiritual sense, and then there's mm -hmm. a liberal in the political sense. You know, liberal would be anything that is left of center when you talk about what would be considered societal norms, um, and then conservative typically go center or right of center um, when you're looking at kind of the paradigm of it. And so, you know, the world in which I grew up in, again, I, I can't speak for where people are today because deception rules the day and people's mindsets uh, are weighed down by what they're drinking in at this hour. But I'll tell you, brothers, the world I grew up in was a world, even as a young black boy growing up to a young black male, the expectation was toward quote-unquote, conservative values. That was what was upheld in my home. And if I strayed away from that, that was what was punished. And I'm talking, you want the experience of a black man? That's what I went through as a black man. Now, when the Lord saved me, I began to filter everything through the word of God and begin to say, am I living according to his standard? And sometimes that has put me on the outs with people who look like me. And sometimes it's put me on the outs with people who don't look like me and brought me in the fellowship with people who don't and brought me in the fellowship with people who do. Um, but I'm not interested in quoting 30 people and having them affirm what I'm saying. I'm not interested in trying to be a part of some movement where people, uh, you know, simply like what I'm saying because I'm me. I'm not trying to purchase likes 
I'm not trying to purchase geographics and metrics that Facebook allows me to purchase in order to reach you. I believe that the truth will have its day in the hearts and minds of people uh, when they begin to look and study for themselves. And so I'm not interested in talking points. That's the platform of the coward. The coward wants you to agree with him because he has behind him the institution. Now, the man of God wants you to agree with him because he has God behind him. Mm. And he has the word of God as his anchor and as his source. And so in closing, that, that's, that would be my appeal to you that uh, I believe all these things are futile if they're not tied directly and specifically to the action uh, that, that has to accompany the belief in God's word. Eric, any final words? I mean, I agree with you. What you're saying, Deron, 100%. I mean, um, you know, our allegiance is, like I said, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, this all comes down to whether or not you have the biblical worldview or not. And uh, I mean, all these things. So we need to examine all ideologies and fortresses and uh, things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And uh, we need to take them captive and demolish them. That's what he teaches us in his word. And so I just want to uh, conclude with that point. But I appreciate it. I mean, it's good going through this, uh, this speech from Malcolm X. You know, I learned a lot just going, you know, reading through this and, and examining it. So I really appreciate the opportunity to sit with you brothers and go over these features. Yeah. yeah and I want to, I want to thank, I want to thank our, our listeners. Even if you disagree with us, I do want to thank you. Um, I know how difficult it is, even if you disagree with something, uh, to, to sit down and, and actually engage it and think about it. So I, I personally appreciate that, but I also appreciate those who find this encouraging as well. Um, you know, I, I, I believe the Lord has granted us this platform and we're not hiding. We're not hiding behind anything. We're not hiding behind each other. Um, you know, I, I believe that if there is any question, we're accessible men, uh, I don't have a team of employed people surrounding me to keep you from me. Uh, so I believe that you have the access to us and you have the access to the word of God to measure what we're saying and what we're doing. And, and I pray that that's also your aim as well, because that's the only reason that all of this is going to make sense to anyone who's listening. All right. This episode 11 folks, we made it about halfway through the speech surprisingly. So we'll go ahead and do the other half next week. Um, um, uh, again, as I said at the beginning, I know Michael's probably, I think he's still watching. I need Michael Wellen to report <laughs> to, to the podcast <laughs> and I need Matthew Lawrence to report to the podcast so we can have all five of, of, of the crew on together at least one time. <laughs> I know, I know you guys are busy though, but, uh, yeah, that was episode 11 folks. We thank you guys for listening. We thank you. For those of you who support us, we thank you for staying with us for the, the hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes. Uh, for those of you who disagree with us, we thank you for staying as long as you did. So at, at least you gave us a chance. Um, but like I said, anytime we're live on Facebook and you're listening to the podcast, you can feel free in the comment section if you disagree, if you agree, if you have a question, if you have a comment, feel free to leave your comments in the section we will answer we'll either respond in the comment section or we'll respond on the podcast and also make sure 
when we close out this podcast that you scroll back through the comments because we left a whole lot of links for you guys to look at to educate yourselves on some of the things that, you, that we talked about that may may have gone over your head or something that you've probably never heard before. So we provided the links. Again, thank you, Eric, for diligently surfing <laughs> the web for these uh, great awesome definitions and things. <laughs> these great, these great links. <laughs> so, uh, so that's it for this podcast. Uh, again, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for your support. Continue to pray for us that the Lord will continue to use this podcast for his glory. You guys have a great week and be blessed. has been Train of Thought, a podcast of the Biblical Christ Research Institute. For our written articles, go to bcri.wordpress.com. And for sermons, go to SoundCloud and search Biblical Christ Church. For comments and questions, email us at bcritrainofthought at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.